So 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting to read at verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Thank you very much, Margaret, and uh, thank you, Nathan. Let me add my welcome. It's great to see you. Uh, great to be back in this uh, book of 2 Samuel, and uh, can I encourage you to have that passage open, and uh, you'll also find an outline on the inside of, of this uh, sheet. And uh, if you're joining us for the first time this morning, uh, you've come at the, a great time as we head uh, back into this Old Testament story. Well, uh, Nathan has prayed, but let's, uh, let's take a moment now just to ask again for God's help as we turn to his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we read that your word is sharp, like a sword. And we will be tempted this morning to harden our hearts. We pray that you'd help us by your spirit not to do that. Pray that we would have soft hearts as we look into your word. We pray that you might do us good and turn us to the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to uh, introduce our passage this morning by taking you back to a particular moment that I think most of us, if not all of us, will have experienced at some point this morning before we headed out to church. That is that moment when you look at yourself in the mirror. We all done that. I take it most of us have, have done that. How did you feel about yourself uh, at that moment? For some of us, it will have been a very quick glance on the way out of the door as we just check that we look vaguely decent. Haven't cut myself shaving, haven't got toothpaste on my chin, collars not sticking up, that kind of thing. Personally, for me, it, it, it's about two seconds. Not a hair out of place. <laughs> Good to go. Others, and I don't want to, I'm not going to gender stereotype, I'm not going to do that. Um, but others of us might have spent a little bit longer looking in the mirror, checking your hair, good for you. <laughs> bit of makeup if you wear it. Maybe checking how that outfit works, does that top still fit and that kind of thing. And I've noticed with the women in my household, I'm not gender stereotyping, but I've noticed with the women in my household, there, there is that, that moment of sort of, critical self-assessment. Just, just, you know, 
Do I look decent? Am I good to go? That kind of thing. Well, how did you feel when you looked in the mirror this morning? Were you satisfied? Dissatisfied? Resigned to reality? And of course, we know, don't we, that some mirrors are more truthful than others. Did you know that? You know the ones in clothes shops and hairdressers, they, they reflect back a little bit less light, and so they're more flattering. And you look at yourself, yeah, I'm looking pretty good. They kind of cover over the wrinkles and the pimples and the imperfections, and then you, you walk out of that shop and you catch yourself in a you know, mirror of a, a hardware store or something in all the glaring lights. You think, is that, is that really what I look like? That's actually what I look like. And it's a shock, isn't it? Well, now imagine a mirror that could show you your very heart. Forget your hairstyle, your height, your waistline, your biceps, your lack of them, the wrinkles, the sags, the blips and blemishes that you are concerned about that is normal for human vision to see. But just imagine with me for a moment that you could look into a mirror and, and see your inner self. You could see the most private, hidden part of your human nature. You know, that bit that nobody else ever sees. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a mirror that would show you with complete honesty who you really are? When you're stripped of all the kind of human conventions and politeness and masks and pretenses and self-righteousness that we wear to deceive others and to even deceive ourselves. How would you feel about that kind of exposure? And what do you think that mirror would reveal? Well, come with me to 2 Samuel 11. And what we're going to see this morning and actually over the next few weeks into chapter 12 and beyond is that the Word of God is such a mirror. It's actually the only one of its kind. There is nowhere else in the world you can go that will show you your inner self with such total shattering honesty. And that's why I prayed as I did at the beginning. Not to harden our hearts, not to avoid this shattering look at the word. Because this is going to be hard to bear, it's going to be hard to hear, it's going to be painful. Because we're going to see a devastating diagnosis of our own hearts. We're going to see however healthy we think we are, we are sick. We're going to see however good we think we are, that we are helpless and hopeless, that we are totally unfit to rule God's world, we are in desperate need of help. And the reason we're going to do that is because once we've faced ourselves, we can begin to see who we might be in Christ. Only by facing the disease can we appreciate the cure. So let's get started this morning with the first five verses that Margaret read to us and three points you'll see on the outline. Danger, disaster, diagnosis. Danger, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when king goes off, the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, if you're new to us, what we do now is we, we, we look carefully at the story and we respect what the writer has written and we pay attention to it. And I want you to notice here in verse 1 
that the narrator has, has put in our minds two contrasting horizons, two contrasting horizons. The battlefield is the first one. We are told that it's the spring. That is the time when the better weather allows kings to lead their armies out to fight their battles after the pause in hostilities for the winter rains. And the particular battlefield, and this reminds us that we're in history here. This is not a moral parable. This is kind of real history. These are things that happen. The battlefield we are to imagine is the battlefield involving Israel's troops led by the commander Joab around the Ammonite city of Rabbah. And what is happening here is a war that started in chapter 10 is being finished off. So if you were here in the previous series, you may remember chapter 10. David was getting to a fight with the Ammonites. And here, to the end of chapter 12, is the end of that war. In other words, the opening scene gives us the king of Israel doing exactly what the king of Israel was meant to do, which is to fight Israel's battles and to crush Israel's enemies. That is what the king of Israel was always meant to do. Verse 1 always remind, also reminds us that David is at the height of his power. And I want to draw your attention to a little word that is a key word in the chapter, that word send. It appears 12 times throughout chapter 11. And as you read the chapter, and I encourage you to read it in the week ahead, you'll notice quite strikingly that David is sending. And even in our passage this morning, David actually doesn't, rem- he doesn't move anywhere apart from his trip to the roof. He stays where he is throughout the whole chapter, and he's sending people, he's sending servants, messengers, messages, letters, soldiers, spies. He is sending people to do his will. And that is a picture, isn't it, of great power. He sends people out and they go. He sends instructions and they are followed. And it's the word that shows David is in control of his kingdom. He is powerful. He is able. He's at the top of the game. He is at the top of that M in the McDonald's diagram. Didn't that diagram make you hungry? I think we should always have diagrams made of food in future. He is at the top of the curve, the top of his game. He is powerful. He is in control. Well, if the first horizon is the battlefield, the second horizon we are shown is the bedroom. See, notice the narrator tells us that this is the time when kings go to war, but David didn't go. He sent Joab. We're told that Joab and the whole army, the whole of Israel, went to destroy the Ammonites. But look at that, end of verse 1. But David remained, and the verb could be translated sat. David remained sat in Jerusalem. So those are the two horizons. The narrator is getting us to picture the battlefield and the bedroom. Well, what is his purpose in getting us to show those two contrasting horizons? Well, of course, we could see here a warning against sort of idleness and excessive leisure time. You know the old saying, and it's not a biblical saying, but it's a true saying, isn't it? The devil finds work for idle hands. If David had gone off to war with his troops, then what we're about to see unfold would never have happened. Now, there might be some truth in that. It's certainly true that self-indulgence, while promising happiness, actually brings misery and temptation. 
Whereas self-denial and service to others brings joy and satisfaction because that is what we're made for. So just think about this. Think of the most busy, servant-hearted people that you know in, in church. And now think of the happiest, most joyful people you know in church. And they, they will tend to be the same people. It's not a rule, but they, they will tend to be the same people. People who are serving and busy, they tend to be the spiritually healthy and happy. They tend to be the same people. Now, that may well be true. There may be some truth in that. The devil, brings, uh, the devil finds work for idle hands. But is this the reason? Is this the lesson? Well, I think we need to reserve judgment about the rights and wrongs of David staying in Jerusalem. After all, if you read back in chapter 10, you'll see that he stayed in Jerusalem before with no ill effects, no judgment was made on it. No doubt kings didn't always have to go to war. No doubt he had plenty of business to do at home. He was running a state after all. He also had a capable commander in Joab. And the best leadership books tell you why have a dog and bark yourself. Send Joab, stay behind, do some other work. More importantly, we don't actually know David's motives for staying. And the narrator doesn't tell us. But what he does do, he wants us to see those two horizons very clearly. He wants us to see the contrast. So can I ask you now just to press in on the passage a little bit and imagine the two scenes. On the one hand, there are the screams and blood and mud and clash of swords and shouting and yelling and danger of the battlefield out at Rabbah. What a horrible place to be. And on the other hand, there is the peace and serenity of David's palace as he takes a late afternoon siesta in his bed. Can you see the contrast that we're being painted? The battlefield on one hand, the bedroom on the other. And I said to the staff team on Friday, if someone were to make a film of this, what would it look like? And one of them said, well, it would look like Helm's Deep and the Orcs and then Arwen floating in Rivendell in Peter Jackson's Twin Towers. If you don't know the film, look it up. But you've got the picture. And this is the question the narrator is asking us. This is the question. Where do you think the biggest danger lies for David and the kingdom of God? That's the question. Where do you think the greatest danger lies for David and the kingdom of God. Is the danger out there in the battlefield where swords and spears and arrows are killing people? Or could there be an even greater danger lurking right here in Jerusalem, in David's bedroom? That is the question. Is the real danger out there or is it in here? Now remember why this question matters at this time. Because David is at the top of the M. He is at the very high point of his life as the king of Israel. And chapter 10 has shown him at his very best, his most noble, gracious, strong. And I want to make the case that David is actually the best of humanity. He is God's king. He is God's Messiah. He is the one who wrote the Psalms. He is the one who loves God. He wrote Psalm 86. He wrote Psalm 23. David is the best of us. He loves God. He loves the law of God. There is no one on earth more godly than David. He is the best. 
And there is no one safer than a king behind the walls of Jerusalem, safe from every external threat. And yet what this chapter is going to show us is that he's not safe from himself. The greatest danger to David and to the kingdom of God is lurking within his own heart. Well, what do you think? When you think about your life, where is the danger for you? Is it out there in the world? Or is it in here, in your heart? See, we get very bothered about the dangers out there, don't we? The dangers to our bodies and livelihoods and even our lives. Who would have imagined a year or two ago that we would all be living in fear of this tiny virus that can get into our systems? Who would have imagined the extremes we would go to to prevent that little virus entering our bodies? Great danger, great inconvenience. But we so easily forget, don't we, that all the time the real danger is not out there, but it's in here. And if we recognize that, it will change things, won't it? Well, let's come now to the disaster in 2 to 4. Look with me at verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. Now, there's nothing sinful about having an afternoon siesta. There's nothing sinful about taking a walk and a bit of fresh air on the roof of your palace. But there is something ominous about the line. This is not the first time that a king has walked on the roof of his palace, and that has led to trouble. There seems to be something about height that leads to trouble in the Bible. When Satan tempted Jesus in Luke 4, he took him up, didn't he, to a high place, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and says, all of this could be yours, and you'll be very, very happy. It is a test. Well, here is David's test. He's on a high place. He's on a high place in his reign, and he's physically on a high place. He is looking down over Jerusalem, and the devil is saying things to him. Well, what does he see? From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. There's been a long debate about whether this woman, whose name we'll learn in a moment, is in any way culpable for what happens next. She's bathing naked in the open air within sight of the king's palace. What is going on? And some have suggested that she is deliberately, provocatively bathing naked in sight of the king's palace, that she's got some kind of plan. And later when summoned, she only too willingly allows herself to be taken. And all the way through, she is a willing conspirator in David's sin. But we have to remember that we're in the hands of a master storyteller And one of the marks of a great narrative is not only the things it tells you, but the things it doesn't tell you. And our narrator is silent about the woman's motivation. It is David who is his sole concern. In fact, the little note in brackets in verse 4 tells us that this was probably a completely innocent, even a godly act. She is washing herself in a kind of a religious cleansing after her monthly period, and it tells us this is actually godly behavior, if anything, on her part. Nor, of course, is there anything improper about David seeing her. How was he to know when he went onto his roof that he would see a naked woman 
bathing. It's not his fault. And everything we've seen of David's character so far would lead us to expect him to conduct himself in a particular way. He would see the woman. He would avert his gaze. He would go back inside. But he doesn't. And so... If I can press the pause button for a moment here between the seeing and the doing is one of those aching, agonizing moments. One of those tragic moments in time between what might have happened and what did happen. And the course of action David will follow will look, he'll cause him to look back for the rest of his life with deep, deep regret. We are told. Notice that the woman was very beautiful. Literally, she was very good to look at. She was a good looker, you might say. And this particular expression is used a number of times in the Bible. And in itself, it contains no hint of sin or impropriety. It is used, for example, of Isaac's wife, Rebecca, in Genesis 24. It is also used of Esther in Esther 2 to capture the goodness and glory of and innocence of a woman's body in the sight of her husband, which has been created by God for that very purpose. In other words, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. A naked woman is a good thing to look at. You can quote me, the senior pastor of Morelands Church. Students, as you're discussing, how was church this morning with your friends? Well, the pastor of Morelands, he says, a naked woman is a good thing to look at. You can quote me on that. But in the Bible, this good thing is protected and guarded for inside marriage. Which is why Moses said in the 10th commandment, you shall not cover your neighbor's wife. And why Jesus said in Matthew 5 that to look lustfully at a woman is, to cul- is sin. And so what we expect this godly king to do is to turn away, to go inside. But David does not do what we expect him to do. And for the second time in three verses, we see this word send. Verse 3, David sent someone to find out about her. And the man comes back and tells him it's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David learns a number of things. He learns her name, Bathsheba. The narrator gives her a name later in the passage. It will just be the woman. But she has a name. She's not just an object She's a person. He also learns she's got a history. It's very rare in the Bible to be told someone's parentage and their spouse, but she has a history. She has this network of relationships. She's in a community, and she's held together by marriage. Because most importantly, she has a husband, and we will learn in the next section that husband happens to be one of David's fighting men who at that very moment in time is fighting the war with Joab, with the Ammonites. Well, verse 4, we get another word, send. David sent messengers to get her, literally take her. She came to him and he lay with her, then she went back home. The event that sets off the trajectory of the next several chapters, is described very, very quickly, very brutally by the narrator in three verbs. He, he sent, he took, he lay, and then she went home. The deed is done. 
And as far as David is concerned, this king at the top of his game, that's the end of the matter. Because here is someone with enormous power and control. He can put this matter behind him. Whatever he thought after the event, it's done. It was a momentary lapse, an impulsive one-night stand, no harm done. After all, he is the king. He can do what he wants. No restraint, no justification needed, no one need know, no regrets, no reservations, no consequences. But we're going to see next week, the week after, the week after that, just how wrong David is. That this little event described with three verbs, he sent, he took, he lay, these will be consequential events for David, for Bathsheba, for Uriah, for Israel. From this one moment of decision, from this one single lustful look, sin, deceit, and death will cascade downwards, will spread out in time and space, will actually break the kingdom, will lead to pain and sorrow beyond anything David could possibly have imagined. And so, let me suggest as we look into the mirror of God's word, that one thing we are seeing, it's not the only thing, but one thing we are seeing here is the extreme danger of sexual sin that lurks in the heart of each of us. See, this is put, isn't it, against the backdrop of the whole Bible. This isn't coming out of nowhere. When God created humanity in the beginning, he made us male and female. That is, he made us sexual beings. And he gave the gift of nakedness and sexual desire and sexual pleasure in marriage for the very purposes of protecting the relationship between husband and wife and the network of relationships that comes out of that. That is what it's about. Sex, nakedness, sexual desire, attraction are good things in God's world. Our society acts as if they have invented them, but God invented them. It is all God's idea. But as we look into the mirror of God's world, we need to see that something has gone wrong in our sexuality. Our sexual natures and desires so powerfully good when used within the framework of marriage are now actually the most dangerous part of our being. It's been likened to having a little nuclear reactor inside each one of us. And the danger can spill over at any time and cause immense damage, more damage than we can imagine. And I wonder if you think this is a bit over the top, a little bit extreme, a little bit unrealistic. After all, doesn't every part of our society teach us the doctrine that the free expression of sexual identity and desire is fundamental to human happiness? Doesn't that our culture insist that sexual identity and expression is the, the most important part of the self? And to deny the ability to express that fully, so long as the other person is consenting, of course, is an act of oppression detrimental to human flourishing? Are we not told over and over again that to deny our sexual preferences is to reject our authentic self? You just have to watch TV for five minutes, don't you? 
and not the hairy bikers. I recommend that. You will not see this doctrine pushed there particularly. My favorite TV program at the moment. But other than that, doesn't every sitcom and reality show and soap opera and the lyrics of almost every pop song in almost every Hollywood film just present this sexual freedom? It's just a bit of fun, isn't it? It's like the TV series Friends, which I've never, ever watched, but I've just seen like odd minutes of here and there. And what I've learned from those odd minutes is just adultery is a bit of fun. No consequences. Well, this is what the world says, but we need to come to the word of God and we'll see something very different. So look with me on the screen at what Jesus says in Matthew 5. And see if you think this is over the top. He says, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. Jesus is saying that the danger is ultimately spiritual. Here is Jesus' lesson on safe sex. See, that expression usually means avoiding pregnancy or disease, but Jesus is saying, here is my lesson on same self-sex, safe sex, sorry. It's about not destroying your soul in eternity. The only safe sex is sex within marriage. And the danger starts from one lustful look. And that is why I must say something about pornography. Because this is such an enormous problem. It's something we really need to get to grips with as a church and understand as Christians the huge problem this is. Research has shown that pornography works to create a physical and psychological addiction like drugs. A kind of gradual hardening process of experimentation and escalation and desensitization where what is more and more shocking becomes normal and addiction and destructive consequences for life follow. Now, I don't think it'd be too stretching things too much to trace those steps in the life of David. See, I, I don't think David woke up that morning and said to himself, today I'm going to commit adultery. And so it may not be too fanciful to trace the steps leading up to this point. And you may want to remember that David already had several concubines and wives. In fact, by the time you get to chapter 10, the reader has lost count of the concubines and wives he has gathered. And so really, David has the ancient equivalent of internet pornography. He has a harem of beautiful women, a different one for every night of the week. And yet here he is seeing one more. And it's never enough. It is never enough. His appetite has become insatiable. His polygamous lifestyle, which the Bible never condones, has started him down the track that leads to adultery. And I think it's a perfect illustration, isn't it, of James 1 verse 15. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, what is full grown, gives birth to death. And this is how sexual sin works. Our brains get rewired, our responses desensitized, our conscience is hardened. So one decision leads to the next and consequences beyond anything 
we can imagine. And this is why Jesus warns us in Matthew 5 to be ruthless with sexual sin and uses deliberately extreme language, not just to reject the sin, but to eliminate anything, even insignificant steps that might lead you into temptation. And so can I encourage you, wherever you're at with this, to hear Jesus' words and take them seriously. Take steps. Not being alone with a computer in your room would be a great place to start. Be careful what your eyes see. Be very wary of what your friend wants to show you on their phone at school. Maybe it's something innocent, indiscriminate, TV watching or computer gaming or flicking through Instagram. One thing can lead to another. And then most of all, there is the secrecy and shame that prevents speaking. So can I encourage you to speak to somebody? If you are caught up in this trap, speak to somebody and get some help. And so here is a warning to us from the Word of God as we look into the mirror. Man, woman, boy, girl, married, single, young, old, you and I are in danger of sexual sin. Do not think that could never be me. Heed the warning of God's word. Small steps lead to tragic outcomes. Well, the consequences for David, we're only going to see beginning this week. But we get a diagnosis in verse 5. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. The words David hears are more than enough to shatter his world. And now we understand the significance of the little bit in brackets in verse 4 about Bathsheba purifying herself. She's just finished her monthly period. Her husband is away on the battlefront. And so there is this unavoidable diagnosis in verse 5 that the child conceived can only be without question David's. And suddenly David's power and control evaporate. And he sees that there are going to be consequences. And come back next week to see the fallout. But when I say diagnosis, I don't just mean Bathsheba's pregnancy. Remember that we are looking into the mirror of God's word. And the story is being told so that we will see ourselves rightly. We've already seen the particular danger of sexual sin. But now we need to see something more. Now we need to lean in a little bit further into God's word and see something even more fundamental. We are being shown here the hopelessness and helplessness of the human heart. You see, it might be as I've been speaking that you're thinking, well, sexual sin is, is not your burning issue right now. Or it might be, as I've been speaking, that you found yourself distancing yourself from David and thinking, well, I I would never do that. This story is not about me. But do you really think you are better than David, than God's Messiah, the man after God's heart, the one who wrote the Psalms? As I've said, I think David is the best of us, and yet he fell spectacularly. By the end of chapter 11, we will see him become a murderer. 
And if David can fall, then so can any of us. Well, how is that possible? How is that right? Well, look back over the passage again, and I wonder if you notice a couple of striking allusions to the original story of man's sin in the Garden of Eden. See, back in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were in a very similar situation to David. They were surrounded by God's blessing and goodness. They were safe, walled in in the Garden of Eden. There was no external danger. There were no soldiers coming to attack. Just like David, they were surrounded by blessing. They had everything they need. And in the garden, what happened? The woman saw something that was pleasing to the eye, something that was good to look at. It went in the eye, and the heart said, take. And David, walking on the roof of his house, he sees something that is good to look at, something to be desired, and his heart says, take. The woman took, ate, and hid. In the same way, David, as we saw, took, lay, and next week we'll see him hide. And so, deliberately, the narrator wants us to join the dots between David's sin and Adam and Eve's sin. He wants us to see that the danger that destroyed the Garden of Eden is now going to destroy the kingdom of God. It's the same problem, the same fundamental flaw in each one of us. And therefore, he wants us to join the dots between Adam and David and ourselves so that we will know that we are capable of destroying everything good in our world And the danger is within. There is something wrong with us. There is something in our hearts that cannot be fixed by external means. Our hearts by nature are impure. They are bent towards sin. We are weak and hopeless. And no matter how much we try, no matter how much money we throw at it, no matter how much education we throw at it, no matter how much technology we throw at it, we cannot fix ourselves, we cannot run the world. If someone as great as David can destroy himself, what hope is there for the rest of us? And it's important that we face up to this. C.S. Lewis, the writer of the Narnia Chronicles, looks back on his days as a young atheist scholar, and he said at the time of his conversion, it was a painful process because he had to face up to himself before he could face up to God. And he said this, he said, for the first time, I examined myself seriously, and what I found appalled me, a zoo of vice, a bedlam of ambition, a nursery of fear, a harem of fondled hatreds. Or you might know the words of the Book of Common Prayer. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. We have done those things we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. Or listen to Jesus in Mark 7. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and defile the person. Well, what does this mean in practice? It means that whatever we do in life, we're in trouble. Do you put your hope in politics? That there could be some great leader who will arise and sort out the problems of this country? No. Politicians can't sort it out. Are you looking forward to 
getting into a marriage and thinking that's going to sort out. No. You take all your baggage with you into your marriage. Or are you thinking more broadly about salvation? How are you going to get to heaven? How are you going to get to the new creation? How are you going to face God on the last day? Are you thinking that he can look at you and see someone good? No. We are hopeless and helpless. We are full of sin. There is no health within us. That is the lesson. And so can I invite you, therefore, to look in the mirror. Don't worry about your hair. Worry about your heart. Well, what is to be done? See, I've been using the metaphor of looking into the mirror and seeing ourselves. And I hope, I genuinely hope, that it's been a painful experience. I hope you've seen just a little glimpse of the ugliness that is there. But I want to give you a different metaphor now. You see, the, the question that really matters is, is not what we see when we look in the mirror, but what does God see when he looks at us? What does God see when he looks at us? That's what matters. See, if God sees what we see, then we're in trouble. But we need to remember this is part of a bigger story. And back in chapter 7, God made a solemn, binding promise to David that he would establish his kingdom through his son. There would be one that comes from his own body. That is, there will be a flesh and blood son of Adam who will sit on the throne of Israel. And somehow, some way, in some time in the future, that son will not fail. He will sit on his high place. He will be taken up to the high place and shown all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil will say to him, you can have all of this and it will make you happy. And he will say, no. And not only at that moment, but time and time again, every woman he sees who is beautiful, he will say no. Every opportunity for selfishness, he will say no. Every opportunity to lie, he will say no. He will say no to coveting. He'll say no to murder. He'll say no to blasphemy. He'll say no to all the commandments that are broken. And positively, he will live without greed, without selfishness, with absolute purity, with utter love every moment, every minute, every second of his life. And in 2 Samuel 7, God says, this son of David is going to come. A real flesh and blood son of Adam like you, like me, who will be like his father, but not like his father. And he will establish his throne forever. Can you imagine someone like that? It's hard to imagine, isn't it? A human being who has never had a lustful thought, never argued back with his parents, never taken advantage of another for his own ends, never lied, never looked over the fence and covetedness, who has never been without love of God, love of his fellow people. Well, this is the son of David, of whom the writer to the Hebrews says, he was made like his brothers in every way, And so he is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. He is able to sympathize. He is not judging us. He is looking at the ugly black hearts inside of us. He is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. He was tempted in every way, just as we are. Hebrews 3.17 and yet Hebrews 4.15. 
he was without sin. See, I've asked you to look into the mirror of God's word and see ourselves. And can I encourage you not to harden your heart, not to run to one of the more flattering mirrors, but to look hard at yourself and to see what is true and not run away. To see the ugliness of sin. To see it for what it is. Because then you will see the beauty of Jesus Christ reflected back. Can you see him? Here is the true man in whom we are to place our hope. And if we place our hope in him, then when God looks at us, it's him he sees. He is the protection we need from the danger of our own hearts. And as we clothe ourselves in his righteousness, we are driven to live differently. But we're also safe from our own sin. And so when God looks at us in Christ, no matter what you have looked at, what you have thought, what you have said, what you have done, God sees the beauty of his life, his flawless life, his perfection, the righteousness that is now passed on to you and me through his death on the cross. And so can I invite you to look into the mirror of God's word and see him. Let's pray together. You'll see at the bottom I've put uh, Romans 13. And I'll read that and then we'll pray. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that the time is coming when we will no longer need to struggle with sin. In the meantime, we humbly recognize the danger of our sinful hearts, which is capable of destroying everything good in this world. And we come to you now and ask that you would clothe us in Christ's righteousness and recognize that his righteous life is our only hope. We pray this in his name. Amen.